0: My collaborator today is Shay Huff, an insightful and skilled coach, facilitator, and educator. I have so much gratitude to Shay for taking the time to talk with me for this episode and for being so vulnerable and open about sharing her story of addiction and recovery. She speaks to a breadth of complex, often hard-to-navigate experiences of being human. She shares her thoughts on anger and how and when to let it go, as well as how to see that our anger is often a mask for fear. She emphasizes the importance of women uplifting one another and how learning to do that for herself has been so essential to her personal growth and professional development. And she really digs into the work of humanizing ourselves and others to see the fullness of our experience and how the things that challenge us the most are also the things that help us grow the most. Shay is a model for what it looks like to do our own work and how our personal journey can be used to benefit others, as well as how essential community is in the work of healing. Content notification, Shay shares her story of addiction and a suicide attempt. Her story could be a great support for any listeners who are facing similar situations, but please, if you need support, do an online search for things in your area, crisis lines, whatever country you live in, there's always something out there. Hi, Shay. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Kate.
0: Thanks so much for making the time to collaborate on it. I'm very, very, very excited about this uh, because you're like the ideal guest. People are always asking me like, what kind of guests are you looking for? And I'm like, oh, you know, people who are really engaged in a personal process of like practice and understanding and then also with like sharing that with the world. So you're a perfect fit. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, and to start off, my first question is always like, if, if you could just speak a bit about your background and what brought you to the work that you're doing, like, what is your, I don't know, social restoration or wakefulness origin story?
1: Oof, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> so wakefulness, you know, I, I love that you say that because I kind of look at my story uh, over the past few years as waking up. I'll touch just a little bit on my background background, which is to say my childhood. So I grew up in a home that was very chaotic, rife with drugs and alcohol, lots of violence, um, mental, physical, emotional abuse. And I kind of grew up believing that this was my lot in life and I had to figure out kind of how to manage, right? Like the chaos and the anxiety. And I didn't realize that there was an option for that not to be a part of my life. So. As I grew up and kind of carried these habits and beliefs into the world with me, um, and in addition to those beliefs, kind of never being told I love you growing up, never being told that you're worthy growing up, never being told that you are deserving of love, never being told that you are good as you are, I carried all of that with me into my teenage years, into my young adult years, and into my early to mid-30s. I'm 35 now. And I spent many, many years trying very hard not to be my mother. My mother had a she a huge drug problem. she was very detached from the family. Um, she had five kids, but she spent most of her time in her bedroom with her boyfriends. Um, only later did I come to understand that she had her own struggles to deal with and you know I had a lot of issues with her growing up, and we actually have a great relationship uh, now, um, which I can jump into a little bit later if you'd like but I just remember always believing that uh as long as I didn't behave and become my you know behave like and become my mother I was going to be better off maybe not okay but better off and about five years ago and to be quite honest probably a bit sooner than that um, and maybe I just wasn't ready to address it yet I became aware of the fact that I was a hopeless and miserable alcoholic and so uh, I kind of wrestled with that for a few years. I tried to manage it in all the various ways. If there's any alcoholics out there listening, you know the various ways in which we try to manage that lifestyle, uh, only drinking on the weekends, uh, committing to never starting to drink in the morning, switching from hard alcohol to just beer, switching from beer to just wine. oh I'll only drink two bottles tonight. There, there's just a whole host of ways of trying to manage that and I found myself not being able to do that right so like still living in that chaos, still living in that, um, that frame of mind of this is, this is my life to manage. I don't have any other options. There's no other choices. I just have to figure out how to live this life. And uh, it wasn't working. And I hit a rock bottom. And my rock bottom happened to be a suicide attempt. I um, ate a bottle of pills, spent five days in the hospital, and I just want to point out real quick the the absolute sickness of an alcoholic's mind. So I just tried to kill myself. I'm laying in the hospital bed. The doctors are talking to me about the possibility of needing a liver transplant because my liver was failing, not getting better, even though I was on two different IVs. Um, They were drawing my blood every six hours to check my, um, the stability of my liver. And it was slowly declining. Mm -hmm. All I cared about during this time was that nobody found out that I get back to work as quickly as possible because i would spent all of my rent money on alcohol and I was in uh, danger of getting evicted yet again. This was a monthly thing I was going through, uh, avoiding the eviction process. And thirdly, I really wanted a cigarette. So I had no regard, right, for my own physical, mental, and emotional well-being. All mm-hmm. I cared about was those three things. And that is the sickness uh, that this person, that this alcoholic dealt with. Just a complete disregard for self, right? So uh, that was kind of my window for, okay, what am I gonna do now? I I really actually have to face this problem now. And uh, that was kind of the beginning of me waking up. So it took me about three years kind of stumbling and, and falling. But as of April 14th, uh, 2018, I have uh, celebrated two years of sobriety and it's been kind of a rocky road. And so with that long explanation, you know, when you first get sober, when I first got sober, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I liked or what I didn't like. I didn't know how to pay bills on time. I didn't know how to budget. I didn't know that it's good to shower on a regular basis. There were just these things that I missed growing up or didn't pay attention to, right? Or didn't care about,
0: mm-hmm.
1: didn't think were relevant to me, whatever, a whole, whole, whole host of reasons. But what I really found, what really bothered me was two things. The first thing was, I was afraid of everything. And I had no idea that I was masking that fear with anger. And the second thing is, I was so intimidated by every other female on this planet that I was shocked by how judgmental I was towards other women, how high the walls were that I was putting up when it came to other women women and how absolutely lonely I was because I only sought relationships with men. I never sought relationships with women. They sought relationships with me and I would let them in if I felt like they were good people, but it was never me seeking to make bonds with other women. I was constantly comparing myself to women and I was always coming up short. I was constantly comparing my body, my professional health, I felt very unworthy. I felt like I wasn't enough. And I remember having a conversation with a gentleman in the rooms, and he said, can I ask you a few questions? And I said, yeah. And he said, this story always makes me a little emotional, so I apologize for that. Um, He said, if there was a little girl who needed help, would you want to help her? And I said, yeah, of course and he said if she needed someone to take care of her would you want to take care of her and i said yeah i mean who wouldn't you know and he Mm -hmm. said if she needed someone to tell her that they loved her and that she was enough and that she was going to be okay would you want to do that and i said absolutely and he said what if i told you that that little girl was you Mm -hmm. and i about lost it actually i started crying immediately I'd never realized that I was still carrying that little girl with me, right? Mm-hmm. Like all those past versions of me who had been scared and hurt and never felt like she was enough. I was carrying her with me and I had never, i never realized it.
0: Th- that just makes me think of, um, of, my wife has this great practice that she does for me when I'm like beating up on myself. And she says, don't talk to my wife that way.
1: Mm. <laughs> Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like the ways that we treat ourselves, the ways that we, and yet, like you said, like who wouldn't, who wouldn't take care of a small hurting child? Yeah. Without seeing that about ourselves.
1: Absolutely. And so that kind of really jump started the process, you know, of me being like, what does that mean, right? To take care of me, that little girl. And I remember having a friend over for dinner. And uh, we were talking about women and, the female to female relationship and competition and how we all, you know, kind of size each other up. And it's like another woman walks into the room and it's like two, two gladiators, right. Kind of like facing off. And, um, why is it that we do that? You know, and why do we not show each other more love? And why is there that barrier when it went, when it shouldn't be there? And so I thought, Oh God, like I miss having these dinner parties because I would do that all the time when I was drinking and I miss it. And, I decided to have a dinner party. I just wanted to have a few girls over and I invited, I think i like 126 women to my, you know, 437 square foot studio apartment. And I thought, Oh God, (laughs) even if 10 women showed up like this is too small. And so of course I don't know how to do anything small. So I thought, Oh, I'll just like find a space and I'll like, you know, I'll still bring food and coffee and snacks. And I actually had someone donate a space and about 20 women showed up and the energy in the room was palpable. I literally just wanted to know, what's it like to be you? In 2016, what is it like to be a female? And there were women crying. There were women who were furious. There were women who were just exhausted by being a woman. I would previously just wanted to do it the one time. And I left that meeting and I was like, I can never not do this again. Like I have to... I, have to do this again. And I don't know what it's gonna look like, I don't know how I'm gonna make it happen, but this cannot stop. Like these women need a space where they can be themselves, Mm. where they can talk about their experiences, where they can see that those things that they're struggling with on the inside that they don't wanna share with the world, other women are struggling with that too. And we need to share those things with each other so that we can see that we're not alone, so that we can learn how to support one another. And so that we can carry that message out into the world for the women who are still suffering and who are isolating and who are thinking that suicide is their only option or that they have to manage this life and that this is their only option. Mm-hmm. Right? For those who really believe that, that other lives are not an option for them, that is absolutely not true. And so that's why I love earlier when we were talking, when you talked about sharing wisdom, Um, And being able to acknowledge that wisdom in another person, how that's actually a reflection of your own wisdom. Because Mm -hmm. I really believe that by being vulnerable with one another, what that does is it connects us, right? Because humans love connecting with other humans. And so by doing that, by having that connection, vulnerability is very contagious, right? It creates a ripple effect. There's one drop in the pond and the ripples just float out. and by doing that what we're doing is giving others access to our wisdom pain is a direct link to wisdom and growth and so when you share that with the world what you're doing is you're giving other people the chance to heal and Mm -hmm. grow inward so that's why i that's why i do what i do
0: yeah that's awesome thank
1: you so much really
0: brilliant um so i think i mean this this ties in really well, like to circle back to what you were saying about the relationship that you have with your mother now and that vulnerability thing. So I think it's really common. Like everyone knows it's probably, it's common to the point of being almost cliched and stereotypical of the tension between mothers and daughters and the tension in mother and daughter relationships. Yeah. And I had that with my mom and my mom did an incredible job given that in her upbringing, she did not have great examples of parenting. And she, you know, in the time that she was being raised in the 50s and 60s, uh, child abuse was, of course, normal and fine. (laughs) But but of course, like today, if my mom was a, a kid, she would have been apprehended and removed from the household that she was in. It was really unhealthy. And I remember the point in my in my adulthood when I realized that humanness of my mom. Mm. I realized the vulnerability and the humanness of my mom and I was able to just let go and forgive her for things that I felt like she had done to me as a teenager where I was realizing like, oh, actually given the like limited resources that she had, she did pretty damn well. And again, as a human being, when you've got your own stuff going on, it's really hard to then also deal with the stuff that say a teenage girl has going on, that kind of thing. So like, could you talk a bit about like that process with your mom and that, like how vulnerability and the healing happened with your mom? Cause I think that isn't a really good example of that formative connection that women can make with each other is like daughters with their mothers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, a few things come to mind. One of the first things is there's a passage in, um, in one of the books that I refer to a lot, and it says, we cannot live with anger. I think reading that was probably the beginning of the that Reading that line is what gave me permission, right? It was a confirmation of what I already wanted to let go of anger. And reading that was like the catalyst. And so from that point up until probably about uh, around Christmas 2017, So we're talking about like a two and a half year span here. I was slowly working my way through the process of getting to a point where I was willing to forgive my mom, right? Not forgiving her because I still had this self-righteous anger that I was holding on to. I get to be angry because she's not, because she wasn't the mother that she should have been, right? I'm holding on to that because, because it's all I have. And remember earlier, I said, my whole life run by fear. So what that anger was attached to was a fear of the unknown. Because if I let go of this anger, if I let go of who I know, of how I know her now, I don't know what to expect. And how will things be different? Will things be different? So that fear of the unknown kept me holding on to that anger because I'd rather be angry than be operating in a world where I don't know what's going on. And that's how I was then. That's not how it is now. But so getting to, a pro- getting to a place where I was willing to think about forgiving my mom. And I really love that you brought up the humanness. Because I, it took me a while to see this. And once I did, all the anger kind of melted away. And, and if you've ever had this experience before, you know, you know the feeling I'm talking about it literally feels like something you've been holding on to is draining from your body. It's like a layer being peeled away. I had never realized that I had a, a scroll, right. That I could just unfurl that was miles long that had rules and regulations about the type of mom my mother was supposed to be and how she wasn't measuring up to any of those things. Now, these rules started when I was a very little girl. And so when I think back to where those rules came from, where did those prerequisites come from? Because there weren't any examples in my extended family of like what a, what a good mom looks like. So my only, the only thing I can think of is television. And I don't even know that for sure. But I do know that I had a lot of rules and regulations for how she was supposed to show up in my life regardless of the fact that she had four other children that she needed to care for and herself, and she was a single mom. I didn't consider any of that information. It was literally just, how are you treating me? And so we cannot hold on to anger. That's my, that's my doorway. And all I have to do is open it to walk through. Mm -hmm. And so I opened the door and what do I see on the other side? I see Mary, not mom, Mary. Mary is a person who grew up in a very chaotic home. Mary is a person who to this day has a mother who's not emotionally engaged. Mary is a person who struggled with drug and alcohol abuse, who did the best she could being a single mom, who really wanted to find love. And so she was in relationship after relationship after relationship that didn't work out. Who was trying to figure out how to love herself who had her own mental health issues, right? Just this total human being who, by the way, I'd never had a conversation with about what it means to be a mom. So how, can you, so how can you expect someone to give you what you haven't asked them for? Coming to that realization that my mom is not a god, she's actually just a person who is deserving of being able to walk her own path. And it took me until I was 34 years old to figure that out. And I think I used to feel like, why couldn't this have happened sooner? But I think the reality is it doesn't matter. And I feel grateful that I'm here now. Right. There, there used to be this wall between my mother and I. There's now just open space. Mm. And I don't know what's going to happen and I don't know how we're going to treat each other. I know how I, I, know how I want to show up. I had that idea, right? But I do know that something feels very different.
0: I like that, like the letting go of expectations, right? Like that is a huge part of my practice in showing up in the world for other people mm. is realizing how often our expectations of how other people should be actually causes our own personal suffering.
1: Like, Absolutely.
0: Um, and I think what you're speaking about with the anger thing, is so important but so difficult because of the nuance around it and, and the work that's required of seeing how anger, it, how anger is experienced within the body, like inward reflection on how anger is experienced. Because there's so much about people saying, like, how dare you tell me not to be angry? And I'm like, well, I'm not saying don't be angry mm-hmm. because there is something there. Like anger is usually communicating to us our boundaries, and that's important to know where our boundaries are but anger in itself like what you're talking about like the draining feeling like feeling like something is being peeled away and like taken out like there's a whole weight gone Mm -hmm. like what was what was your experience because i think that's really hard for people to be like but my anger feels so good especially when it's righteous it feels so good but like but for how long
1: (laughs) (laughs) as long as you're willing to be in pain And that can be forever if you want it to be. So self-righteous anger, self, that's what comes to mind. Self, I am only thinking about me. This whole situation, even though it involves multiple people is all about me. Now I'm not saying that our feelings aren't valid because everyone's feelings and everyone's experience is valid but what is the lens through which I am viewing this situation? Is it attached to reality or is it attached to the painful experience in my past that I am bringing forward and dumping into this situation? And that's where the work comes in. Because if you're bringing that, I said this to my friend the other day and she (laughs) she's one of the most supportive people I know. And she just looks at me and she goes, I love you so much, but uh, this is really how I feel. So, and maybe, you know, you know, likening people's past experiences to garbage is not the greatest idea, but hear me out. (laughs) okay? We do not get to carry around this 75 pound bag of stuff. I, I sometimes refer to it as garbage. And then one day decide that we don't want it and then go to our neighbor's front door, drop it on their doorstep and go, hey, can you take care of that for me? We don't get to do that. That's, that's your stuff. You have to manage that. So when I think about self-righteous anger, I think about self, right? I'm making this all about me. And then I ask myself, what is my capacity for forgiveness? Not just forgiveness of that other person, right? But forgiveness for myself. Because though the anger might be all wrapped around that other person, there's something in me that's angry at me as well. Because if, if, if it weren't true, if that weren't true, I wouldn't be as angry as, at you as I am. Right. So, I,
0: I'm thinking, so you're saying self, right? And I'm thinking about self-care, which is like a very common subject on this show, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody advocates for it. And I'm just thinking about it in like the context of how you're talking about self, right? Like self-care is like noticing that self that's holding on and making your world really small.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Like how do you define self-care and what are some examples you can give about what that looks like in your life and how you use it?
1: Oh my goodness. Um, I define self-care as it's so nuanced, right? Like. I think in order to really practice self-care, you really have to know yourself or be willing to get to know yourself. I think that if we don't know who we are, we don't know what we need. So for me, self-care is really being relentless about what's going on inside my head and what's going on inside my heart because it is only then when I come to an understanding about what's happening in those spaces, that's when I'm able to do the things that give me outward results, right? Like what do my boundaries look like? Well, what are, what are my boundaries, right? What things make me, what things make me uncomfortable and not just what things make me uncomfortable, but why, what is that? What is that discomfort attached to? Self-care looks like sometimes it's something as simple as Am I too tired to go to the gym? Why do I still want to go? Is it because I feel like if I miss one day at the gym, I'm going to gain 30 pounds? That's something that needs to be looked at, right? I wrote this article about self-care and that it's, it's, it's very trendy, but it's misunderstood. Because self-care is not always, let's take a night off and go party with the girls. Self-care is not always, I'm going to go get my lashes done. Self-care is not always, I'm, you know, I've had a long week. I'm going to go take a yoga class. It is all of those things. But what I um, what I really want people to think about is is my self care temporary or is it long term? Is this a band aid? And band aids are great, right? They help. They can. They can help with the healing process. But is this self care the kind of band aid where if I take it off, the wound is just going to keep reopening? So sometimes self care is setting boundaries with the people that you really love, like your brother or your sister. Sometimes self-care is recognizing that that person that you want to date is really, really fun and really awesome, but there's that one thing that you you already know is a deal breaker and that you need to move away from that situation. Sometimes self-care is admitting to yourself that even though this job is great, when I come here, I'm miserable every day, and so it's time to look for another job. Self-care is about making those decisions that benefit your future, future me. They can be temporary decisions, but they really have to be attached to who am I inherently on the inside? What are the boundaries that, that reflect who I am on the inside? And how do I operate in a space where I am honoring that person on the inside?
0: Yeah, I love so the boundary thing. You have a statement that you make that is so great. Uh, no is a complete sentence. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Could you unpack that because it's so great? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, um, I actually I think I saw that on Instagram, and I was like, that is genius. You know, I think a lot of people deal with guilt um, around. I think a lot of women deal with guilt around not being able to say yes to people all the time right i think we have kind of a it's kind of written into our dna to be nurturers and i think that that is fantastic i love being a nurturer but um at what point does it become a detriment to my well-being like if i have a to-do list and i'm the last thing on the to-do list or i'm not on the to-do list that might be something to think about i think Women in particular really want to please people. I think we want to be liked. And I'm not saying men can't do this as well. I'm saying that it's from the reading I've done, from the conversations I've had, it appears that this is more common among women. So we have this, this need to explain ourselves, right? Or even lie. I can't do this thing because it pushes a boundary or it crosses a boundary or I don't have the time or I'm too tired And then here's 8,000 reasons why. So that you don't feel bad because I'm saying no. And so that I don't feel bad that you feel bad because I'm (laughs) saying no. Right? It's like this, this back and forth thing. And I think it's important to remember that there are very few instances where we owe someone an explanation as to why we can't do something. And even in those instances, you still get to choose whether or not you give that explanation. I am responsible for my own feelings and you are responsible for your own feelings. I have all these theories about like doing the work, you know, that supports you showing up in a wor- in the world in a way that reflects your inner self. And hopefully that inner self is someone that's filled with compassion and forgiveness for self and forgiveness for others and openness and willingness and open-mindedness and all these things, you know, positivity if you're, showing, and if you're showing up in the world that way, the, the chances of you causing a lot of friction are, can be pretty low. But uh, when I say no, or when you say no, whatever emotional reaction that comes up from that, it's actually not the responsibility of the person who said no to manage that. It's whoever's feeling that emotion, it's your responsibility to manage that. And so, so Kate, if you tell me no, I don't want to go to that party and I say, oh, why? Whether or not you answer, that's your choice. And I have to respect that. And if you do choose to answer, whatever that answer is, I have to respect that as well. I don't get to say I don't like that or, or try. I could try and convince you otherwise if I, you know, if I really want you to go to that party with me, or I really want you to go to dinner with me. But the reality is you get to just say no. Yeah. Even if it's because you just want to go home and go to bed. totally yeah and I think that that guilt and that shame that people feel when they feel like they have to say no (laughs) speaking as someone who's experienced that a lot that's usually attached to my wanting to be liked
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I want to be liked I want to be accepted by you and it's also a little bit attached to my somewhere in my mind my thinking that by me not doing that thing that you want me to do your whole world's going to come crashing down
0: right and this is really talking about i mean you're talking about emotional labor and like the emotional labor we do to manage other people's feelings
1: mm-hmm.
0: which does also come back to us not wanting to feel guilty so partially managing our own feelings but still in anticipation of how we think someone else is going to feel whether or not we have proof of that
1: mm-hmm. and
0: you said about choice as well and and you said like how it's kind of written to our into our dna to be nurturers as women and mm-hmm. i think Culturally, that is the narrative that we get for sure Mm -hmm. and so really this comes to the f-word feminism (laughs) 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 Again something brilliant that you said was that feminism lies in the power of choice Yeah, and like that's what you're talking about here, right? Like the choice to say no Right the choice to not do the emotional labor Yeah the choice to make self-care part of your routine, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. How did you come to that understanding? Like, could you unpack that? Cause I think it's, it's really great. And especially around a word that can be like, people have lots of feelings about feminism. <laughs>
1: they do, yeah. Yeah, people have lots of feelings about feminism. And I think that's great if you're open to dialogue and having your thought processes be challenged. I think feminism is a choice because you don't get to tell me what my feminism looks like and I don't get to tell you. See, I grew up in the South and with a lot of Black families, and I'm speaking only about Black families because that's my experience, the man is the head of the household. But in my family, when the men went away to prison, the woman was the head of the household until he came back. And so there's a lot of like gray areas there, you know, like, and even when the man came back, mom runs the children, mom runs the kitchen, mom runs the grocery list, but everything else, dad runs. And so, you know, for some, for a lot of black families, feminism can be great, and there are a lot of people who think that feminism is ruining the black family. Now, for me, also as a Christian woman who believes in a Christian man being the head of his household and leading his family, I think it's important for me to still be able to make choices, to still be able to show up in the world as I want to show up in the world, because I, I believe that that's how God would have me show up in the world. Because at the end of the day, my husband is still human, right? and I'm not married. That's, that's me speaking it into existence. Mama Mm -hmm. wants to have some ladies. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, You know, but it's so, so for me, I kind of struggled with that a little bit. Like, okay, well, like can I be a feminist and like still believe that the man is supposed to be the head of the household? And I, I really just like wrapped myself around an axle trying to figure that out. And here's the simple answer I came to. I can be whatever the hell I want to be. Just like every man running around out in these streets. They get to be whatever they want to be. They don't have to apologize. Not only do they have to apologize, but they throw it in your face. And I'm not saying throw your, your whatever in anybody's face. What I'm saying is I want the same choices. I want the right to make the same choices, without not without repercussion, but without judgment, without pushback that the men in this world get to have. Choice is the most powerful tool that humans have, and I should be allowed to have them just like you do. And if I choose to change my mind about what my household should look like tomorrow or in five minutes from now, I want to be able to do that. If I choose to address my boss about why I'm getting paid $2 less an hour than the guy who's sitting next to me who does the same job, I'm going to do that. If I want to be free with my sexuality and I choose to do that, I'm going to do that, right? Without you calling me a slut, without you calling me a whore. Mm-hmm. If I choose to be a feminist or choose to not be a feminist, I want to be able to do that without feeling like you're going to have something to say about it. Feminism is, a, is the power of choice. I get to choose just like you get to choose. And if I don't get to choose, why? Why is there a difference? And if you can give me a logical reason why women shouldn't be able to make, make choices in the same carefree manner that men can, I'll change my mind. But I don't think there is a difference.
0: Yeah, that's so awesome. It's great. I, I love it. And it's been, for me, my own experience with feminism for sure. Like I didn't really identify as a feminist until I was 30 because I didn't feel like I had a choice as to what it meant to be a feminist. And then I started to realize, like, oh, yeah, I can define feminism for myself. So I'm going to define feminism as gender equality. I believe that regardless of what someone's gender is, they should be able to have opportunities available to them and their gender should have no bearing on that whatsoever.
1: Feminism is for everybody. It's for everybody.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So to close out, I always invite my guests to make an offering of advice or guidance for listeners, like anything that you want to leave folks with to galvanize them or to contemplate or to study up on like anything at all. Just This is like your space for offering.
1: Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, yeah, I do have a couple offerings. You know, something that I always encourage the women and girls that I work with is to, and I think I said this before, is be relentlessly curious about who you are be unapologetically curious about who you are lean into falling in love with yourself because you are so worth it you know the way we see ourselves and the way the world sees ourselves sees us is usually pretty different and the world usually sees us as much better than we see ourselves think about why that is Think about the narrative, the stories that you're telling yourself that allow you to kind of put yourself down or not see yourself as worthy or good enough and do the work that's necessary to figure out how to change those tapes, whether it be therapy, whether it be diving into some sort of sport that you love, whatever it is, like go inward because I really believe you're worth it this process that i've gone through and i'm still going through of figuring out who i am has been one of the most painful confusing and exhausting processes i've ever been through and i'm telling you right now because of where i sit today in myself how i see myself how i view myself and how i view the world i wouldn't change any of it i wouldn't take any of it back I would have asked for help sooner, but I wouldn't take any of it back.
0: Mm -hmm. Radical self acceptance. Absolutely. You can visit sheherwe.com to learn more about Shea Huff's work in the world. Along with some really fantastic coaching packages, which I highly recommend, she runs workshops and yoga classes. And she also has a great Instagram account that's totally worth following. To learn more about my work in the world, visit caitlinschatch.com. Along with more episodes of Everything is Workable, you can find my blog, books, and art. You can also become a patron or leave a tip to help support the things that I do. This episode of Everything is Workable was made possible through the patronage of Gretchen Wagner, Julian and Shannon Hatch, Winita Budgen, and Margaret Prescott, among others. Thank you to Tajai Moore of More Music for the original theme song.